John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. Let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God, beginning in verse 18. Jesus is speaking. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. I'm sorry. Verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who, is commandment, who, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. Father, your word endures forever, for it comes forth from the one who is eternal and unchangeable. We thank you, Lord God, that your word is a fixed standard by which we measure all other things. Lord, as we hear the words of Christ in this passage, as you would bless the preaching of your word, that we would grow in our understanding of that which Christ has declared. Be exalted in our midst. Magnify the Son. O Lord, Holy Spirit, descend upon us and equip us to worship you in the preaching now and the hearing of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the midst of the upper room discourse. Children, a discourse is when someone uh, speaks on. Pretty much they're the one that's speaking. Although we do see that this text that one Judas uh, did ask Jesus a question in the midst of it, but Jesus is this long extended teaching passage in the upper room right before he goes out and is arrested and taken to the cross and crucified. This portion that we're in, you'll remember I said that John 14 has a theme of comfort. Jesus is providing comfort to his people. In chapter 13, he's told them what he had told the, the, the masses, that he was going away and they could not follow him. Uh, Jesus says this to his disciples, but then he says, but you will, you will follow me, you will see me. Now, Jesus has just promised in this context, what we've just seen, that he's going to give these 11 men the spirit, dwelling them in such a way that they would be able to show their love for Jesus through keeping of his precepts. Uh, their obligation to Jesus is not reduced, no, rather Jesus would give them power by the Holy Spirit to do all that God requires of them. Furthermore, it is only when, I'm sorry, furthermore, Jesus has explained that the world cannot receive this Holy Spirit that he has spoken of, that they will receive, because the world does not see him and they, the world does not know him. But Jesus' disciples do, he says, because he, that is the Spirit, dwells in them and will be in them. This brings us back full circle to the question of obedience to Jesus. It is only when the Holy Spirit comes to bring us into fellowship with our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that we are able to keep Jesus' precepts. It's only after God has worked in us, and thus Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my precepts. And we love God because he first loved us. Later on in chapter 15, Jesus will make it very clear Still on the same theme, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But then he says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you abide in me, you can do all things because I will strengthen you. This is what sets the Christian apart from the world. We are sinners, as, is all, as are all those in the world. But we are sinners saved by grace. God has given us the spirit, and therefore we can do all that he calls us to. Now, the theme of this passage, it's a little longer theme, but uh, there's elements of it that uh, will resonate as things that we know. So, 
the theme is, I'm tying this with John 3.16, that God so loved the world, that is the Father loved this world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not have everlasting life. And this is life, as we'll see in the 17th chapter, even as we've seen already, this is life, to know the Father and the Son, to know the Father through the Son, by the working of the Holy Spirit. To all of these, he gave the right to become the children of God. And to these, he has made promises. We're going to have four promises from the text this morning. You see them in your worship guide. Jesus promised they would not be forsaken. Jesus promised they would see him again. Jesus promised to increase their knowledge. And Jesus promised them communion with the Father. So we're going to consider those promises that he made to those men. And we'll see how they indeed apply to us. We'll conclude then with a statement, the truth that because he lives, or because, or we live because Jesus lives. Some of you might remember the Gaither song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. And there's certainly truth in that. We begin with that Jesus promised they would not be forsaken. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 13 and verse 33. Um, there's, they would have heard, there's, this is what he said to the people, My little children, I said, uh, I shall be with you a little longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So he's saying the same thing to them, but he goes on to say more. Now, what I want to look at first in that passage is, Jesus says to them, little children. Remember when we dealt with that? It's a very tender term. Uh, there's tremendous intimacy that Jesus has with these 11 men who have followed, them, followed him these past three years. Little children is not concerning their age. You little children, you may think that's odd that Jesus would address these adult men as little children. But he's speaking of the tenderness that he has for them. There's a sense in which he's speaking of their spiritual stature and maturity at this point, that they are but children. But especially it speaks to the tenderness that he feels for them. These men had been in the world Jesus sought them out. He came and he found them and he called them to himself. He commanded them to follow him. And he promised that he would even make them fishers of men. Jesus is that greater one that Moses said would come. Remember when the uh, religious officials were asking John, John the Baptist, who are you? And he says in such a way that it was very clear that everybody understood. He says, I'm not the one. I'm not the prophet that great prophet, the greater prophet that Moses prophetically said would come. We've got one that God would raise up from their own, out of their own midst. He says, I'm not that one. Well, Jesus is that one. He's the greater one that Moses had foretold would come. And he has been calling out a people, out of the house of bondage, out of sin. He has come with uh, carrying on the message that John began, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or in uh, Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's one and the same kingdom. Jesus is delivering the people out of the world. Jesus is bringing about the exodus. Moses led an exodus to bring the people out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Jesus is leading an exodus to bring sinners out of the world, out of sin, to the Father. And he's bringing them to a better place than uh, the land of promise, the, the, the land that God promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants after him. Jesus brings us to the Father, home, to heaven. He brings us into that garden that John describes so picture, uh, vividly in the book of Revelation. Jesus is bringing about this great exodus. To do that, Jesus had to lay down his life those that he would bring to the Father, they were all sinners. They needed to be washed and cleansed. And in order to accomplish that work, it was necessary that perfect blood be shed. It was obvious from the sacrifices that were offered morning and evening, day after day. A fire was always to be kept burning on the altar. And there was a host of sacrifices, bulls and, and goats and lambs and rams and turtle doves and pigeons. It was very clear that though God commanded that that blood was not sufficient. It was pointing to one greater, and indeed Jesus is that one. His blood will soon be spilled. 
and he'll be sprinkled on sinners to wash them whiter than snow. That's the blessed truth of the gospel. Though our sins be as scarlet, they'll be whiter than snow. Jesus has come to do that and to bring us to the Father. He's come to do this work of salvation. And in order to do that, as Jesus says here in the text, he says, I must go away. He's talking immediately of his going away even hours later in that night when he would be separated from them. And even they would be scattered. They would flee away as he goes to the cross to secure their salvation. And indeed, our salvation, the salvation of all who believe. So Jesus told them now tenderly, my little children. He promises that even as he's going away, in verse 18, there's another wonderful tenderness. I will not leave you, orphans. He's their rabbi. He's their master. He's their teacher. He's the one that he's followed. He's the one who's declared to them, I'm the good shepherd. And, of course, they would be the sheep. But he says, I'm going away. And you can imagine anxiety and and concern and fear. We see something of that in the the days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, that they stay in a room together with the doors locked because they're afraid of the religious leaders. There's an anxiety here. And Jesus is mindful, my little children. And now in verse 18, I will not leave you, leave you as orphans. What is it to be an orphan? An orphan is to be left without parents, to be left without someone to direct your affairs, someone to provide for you. Children, you, you know that uh, having fathers, that there's a time when our fathers will die. I experienced that about two and a half years ago uh, when my father died. He left my sister and brother and I, as orphans, we, we have no parent in the world. He's gone. Someday this will be true for you children. I know that's hard to imagine, but unless Jesus comes again, your parents will arrive at a day when they too will breathe their last and be gathered to their eternal reward. Jesus promises, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will come to you. Again, this passage is filled with yous. Almost every time you encounter one in this passage, remember it's the y'all, it's plural. He's speaking to not just one, but indeed all of his. And through these men, apostles, he's speaking to us, to the church, down through the ages. I will not leave you as orphans. When my father died, I knew he would not come back and care for me. But Jesus, unlike others who have died, would rise again. A little while, he says. Because indeed it would be a matter of just a couple of days, a few nights, and then he'd be raised again, and he'd be back with them. But as with many prophecies in foretellings, there's two fulfillments. A little while, he's arrested, he's crucified, he's placed in the tomb, dead, buried, and then he rises again, he's back with them. A little while. But then after a short while, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And even in that context, he says, I will not leave you orphans. This is a wonderful promise that he will come to them. We should ask the question then, in what way is Jesus coming? If he says, I will come to you, in what way? Well, it's because he comes by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that he has already promised in these previous verses that we considered last week, that we're not left alone, we're not left forsaken. We're given a helper, a comforter, a comforter, an advocate, one who is very God of very God, sent from the Father through the Son to God's people to abide with us forever. The Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus has promised. He's coming by the Spirit. He will come to abide with them, to abide within them, and indeed within all believers, even to the very end of the age and throughout all of eternity. Those of you who have the Holy Spirit, think about this. This is something that you know I've I've marveled over. I hope you marvel over. The wonder of wonder that God, the infinite God, God the Holy Spirit, the third person dwells within us. And he always will. When we are gathered into the presence of God, the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit will be with us. It is the Spirit who sustains us. It is the Spirit who will be ever present with us that we might live for the glory of God. This was the promise that Jesus gave to them concerning the long term. Back in John 14, 3, he says, If I go, which he is, it's that one of those since I go, 
much like in Philippians 2, when Paul uses it that way. Since I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a glorious promise. He's coming again, but until he comes again, to gather us into his presence, to be with him and the Father, Jesus has given us the Spirit, a comforter. Listen how the author of the book of Hebrews captures this truth. Excuse me. In Hebrews 9, 28, he says, To those who eagerly wait for him, that is for Jesus, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Jesus going away to the Father, and yet he will come again. And the marvelous truth is, when he comes again, our salvation will be complete We've spoken from this pulpit times before of how we are saved. When we first believe we're justified in Christ, we have right standing before God. We are being saved. That is the work of the Spirit within us, that we grow in holiness. Sanctification is the term we use. And we shall be saved. There's that day when Jesus shall come, which is what the writer in Hebrews is talking about, when we will deliver for the presence of sin, the power of sin, the ability to sin. We will be finally, fully, completely saved glorified, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. But until then, Jesus has promised these men, and indeed all who believe, I will not leave you orphans. We won't be alone in the world. The Spirit will be with us. That Jesus is teaching this, is what he's, that he's speaking of, is beyond dispute. For he has promised that he would request the Father to send another helper, the Spirit of truth. And immediately after that, Jesus then says, he will not leave us as orphans. He fulfills that. He satisfies that need in the spirit. Let's just consider some application before we go on. What Jesus promised the 11 men in that upper room, by and large, we could say almost universally, those promises are ours. Uh, There are some of the promises that Jesus gave to the apostles uniquely as apostles, that they, for example, who would be writing the Holy Scriptures receive promises that God would call things to mind for them to be able to write those things accurately. The Holy Spirit would enable them to do that. We're not writing Scripture. God's not giving us continued revelation, but the Spirit works in all who believe to understand the Scriptures, that we would grow in our understanding. So the promises to these 11 men are promises for the church. Some of dear sisters and brothers Jesus has not left you alone. He has not left you alone. You are not an orphan. You have the Holy Spirit. Yes, the third person of the Trinity, very God of very God, divine, the spirit of adoption has come to you, teaching you, working within you, that you should cry out to the God as God, also as Father. Paul records it in Romans 8, teaching us to say, Abba, Father. So I've explained to you when we were in Romans, that's just the word for father in two different languages, Aramaic as well as in the Hebrew. Or perhaps it's the Greek, I'm sorry, it would be the Greek. So think about that. We were in Isaiah 46 just a matter of a few minutes ago. With the contrast between the living and true God with the idols of men and how they're a burden, incapable useless, a snare. We've seen that in multiple places in Isaiah so far. And then here's God, the infinite, eternal, unchanging God who dwells with us, who is so powerful, he's beyond our understanding, and yet we get to call him Father. What a precious truth. We're not left as orphans. Jesus has promised that he would come to him. Secondly, we look at Jesus' promise that they will see him again. And, of course, this ties in. We've even had some overlap in this previous point. This passage is filled with these great promises, like the one we've looked at. Jesus promises that he would come again. Again, verse 3 of this same chapter, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So there he's talking about his ascension, returning to the right hand of the Father, that there would be a day, and we're waiting for that day, when he will come again. But Jesus is teaching that he will come again after his suffering. So this question uh, of when he will, uh, that he will come again, we, we want to consider 
the when of it. He, when will he come again? Jesus actually, as I've been saying, um, teaches that there's two comings. He will come, will come again after his resurrection, and he will come again at the end of all things. One absence is connected to his reigning from heaven and preparing a place for his people, and he is still there, and we are waiting for his return. The other departure for these men was very close at hand. He's going to go away. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified and buried, but then he will come back to them. He will come and be with them. And notice what he says in verse 19, and this is where we see the, the promise of that which they're about to experience. He says, a little while longer, the world will see me. And indeed, he's going to be very much publicly on display as he is arrested and carried into Pilate's uh, judicial quarters. He's brought before Pilate, the world seeing him, the world crying out, crucify him, the world against him. A little while and longer. And the world will see me no more, but you will see me after that arrest and crucifixion. He is laid away. And the promise to them was, you will see me. And indeed they did. But what we know from the scripture is that after his resurrection, Jesus made appearances, but they were not to the world. He appeared in the upper room to the 120. On several occasions, he's there with him. Uh, we know at the end of John's gospel, he appears to the disciples as they are on the Sea of Galilee fish, fishing. We're told that he appeared to 500 believers at one occasion. But it's always the church. It's always his people. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. And the reality is, for those who are in the world, those who have rejected Jesus, the next time that he is seen by the world... He will be coming in power and glory to rule and to reign. He will be coming to dispense justice so that those who are found in him will be said, in here now into the rest, prepared for you by my Father. And he will say to the others, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they will be cast into a lake of fire. That's when the world will see Jesus again. But we see Jesus even now with the eye of faith. And as Jesus uses this word here, he says, he uses the word for the idea of perceive, to see, when he says, they will not, to see, you will see me, it's to perceive, to understand. And in that reality, we see Jesus even now as we hear him proclaimed through the gospel. As Jesus is presented to us from the word, we see with the eye of faith and we perceive him. So much so that Paul says in Galatians, he writes to the Galatians, you, Christ whom you saw crucified. They were not in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, but because of the preaching of the word, they see him. Once they see him, he said, then they would know, verse 20, that I am in my father and you, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus teaches this remarkable reality because we see with the eye of faith. We see Jesus. We have a union with him. And we are united then through him to the Father. It's not that we're becoming divine. We're not deified. But we are brought into union with the God who has accepted us and received us in the Son. Jesus' work of salvation secures this union so that he can say, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. It is because of Jesus' work on the cross now, he did appear to them after the resurrection, so much so they saw him eat fish. They were a skeptical. There was even an afraid. They were afraid as he appeared in the upper room. The doors were locked, and then suddenly he was there. You know, we see manifestation that Jesus has um, elements of his glorified body displayed, that he's not bound to space and time as he had been for 33 years. And then he eats in their presence. He presents to them his wounds, even his side, so that they would understand that he really was with him. He was truly alive. Remember, Thomas was not there on that first occasion. And they're telling Thomas about it later. And he said, well, unless I see and I can place my fingers in the nail scars and my hand in his side, I won't believe. And then on a later occasion, Thomas is present. And Jesus is says, and he says, Thomas, come. Place your fingers in my wound. Place your hand on my side. And Thomas falls before him. He doesn't need to do that. He just cries out, my Lord and my God. As he sees the resurrected Lord, he 
believes. But what does Jesus say to him? He said, you're blessed, Thomas, because you see and you believed. But then he speaks of all in the generations since, even of us. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Because by faith we see and we believe. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Jesus promises here to the 11, verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That's true for us. We see and we're united. We see with the eye of faith. And indeed, when God works in us and brings us to himself through his son, we cry out, my Lord and my God. And we rightly fall down and worship him, for he is God. Now, this truth results in a host of outcomes. First, the giving of the Holy Spirit I'm sorry, the giving of spiritual life to Adam's children. That's the result. Because Christ died, now we can live. Those who are dead in Adam now can have eternal life. That's one of the things that Jesus secured. And also, even though we shall die, we shall be raised again when Jesus returns at the end of the age. Jesus has secured this for us as well. That's one of the outcomes. Another outcome is death has no victory over those who believe, belong to Jesus. Thus Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? But is not all this the fulfillment of what God promised? God's purpose, as recorded in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All who follow, by, follow Jesus then are equipped and emboldened to proclaim Christ to the nations. You might be saying, well, you know, I've done some pretty significant things, so that may be true for others, but not for me. Let's remember Peter. We haven't come to when it's going to happen, but we've, we've had Jesus tell Peter it's going to happen. He says, you're going to deny me three times. And yet because of Christ's completed work, Peter was restored Peter was equipped. Peter was emboldened. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Peter, who had once denied Christ, Peter stands before the multitude in Jerusalem, and he proclaims Jesus Christ and him crucified, the only hope of glory, and thousands are added to the church that day. So we may look at ourselves and say, I'm not worthy. That's true. I'm not able. That's true. But in Christ, we are worthy and able to bear witness to God's glory. So it is that Jesus went away from them for a little while, and they saw him. And now Jesus has gone away to be at the right hand of the Father. But in a little while, we shall see him. Now, think about this, children. 2,000 years, does that sound like a little while? That's way more than any of us are going to live, right? 2,000 years to us seems like a long, long time. When we think about um, 100 years ago, that seems like a long time ago. But remember this. How long is eternity? How do you measure eternity? It's on and on and on, years upon years without comfort, myriads and thousands and millions of years. And what's 2,000 years in light of that? Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's been gone 2,000 years. It's still really a little while in the grand scheme of things. And then Jesus will come again. By faith, then, Jesus teaches we're united to him, and we see him. Even though he's at the right hand of the Father, it's as though he has come to us. And the reality is that his death is on our behalf. We're, we die in him. We die with him. His resurrection is our resurrection, so that we are raised from the death of sin into newness of life by union with him, by faith alone. And thus Paul declares in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. There's our death. Nevertheless, I live. There's the resurrection. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It's not the life we are living in and of ourselves. We're living in Christ. All because we have seen him, not with these eyes, but with the eye of faith, faith that God has given us. These men saw him again in a little while. And that which they saw and they understood they have proclaimed to us so that we too, can see Jesus. 
Thirdly, Jesus promised to increase their knowledge. What do we learn so far? We learned what Jesus promised. He has promised that his own, he's promised to his own, they will not be left as orphans. When did he promise that he would see them again? After the resurrection, that he would come. But also, at the end of all times, he will come. The third question is, how will the disciples grow in their knowledge of Jesus? Jesus said that we begin our new life in him by knowing who he is. He is who he said he is. See verse 20 again. At that day, you will know. You will know. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What was one of the things that the religious leaders were so angry about? Because Jesus said he and the Father were one. And the disciples, they too would have struggled with that. They were struggling with that. But Jesus is saying that after this little while, they're going to increase their knowledge. They're going to come to understand with a certainty that I am the Father. That I and the Father are one. They're going to know this reality. How is it that they will know that? Well, we begin our new life by accepting who he is, by faith. But we keep, we grow in this knowledge We grow in this knowledge of him because we love him and we keep his commandments. And that's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And this is a repetition of what he said in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, keep my precepts. What what, uh, Jesus is teaching here is that when we live what he has said, we grow in our understanding. So we've all started a new job. Well, Some of your children haven't. We've all started a job at some time, and it's shown to us how to do that job, and then we start doing that job, and we understand more about that job, and the longer we do it, the better we comprehend it. We grow in our understanding of that by doing it. Children, you might think of it this way. Uh, You're learning uh, your math problems. Perhaps you're on to division and multiplication, and your teacher, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's a teacher in a classroom, they show you how it's done, and so you do it, just out of road, so I go, that's how you do it. But then as you keep doing it, you start to understand it better. It starts to click. Or maybe your, your father's showing you how to do a, a, some task with tools. And the first time you go through it, it's like, well, I see that, and you know, I just kind of do it. But the more you do it, the more you understand it. I can think about when I was probably junior high age, uh, 10, 11, my father had a shop and he tore down an engine with me right there at his side and he showed me how all the engine went together and explained how the parts work. I'm talking about those gasoline engines that we have in our cars. And I was learning, I was growing knowledge. But then as I worked on it more and more and, and did it as he showed me how it was to be done, I grew in my understanding. I had a better comprehension of the whole of it. How much more so with Jesus Christ when we do as he has said to do, as we walk in obedience with him, as we follow after his own commandments, we grow in our understanding, not just in how to do something, how to live, but we grow in our understanding of who he is. So we seek to live our life according to his precepts. As we seek to keep his commandments, to obey the law, as we seek to worship God, what do we find that happens? He's revealed more and more of himself to us. Some of you are old enough that you can say, yeah, I, through coming to worship, participating in worship, I have gained a greater understanding of the God who is, the God who I worship. I've grown as a Christian in my understanding of how God is also my father and how to relate him as a father because is out of love you walk with him and you obey him and these things become clearer and clearer to you. You know, this is what Jesus is getting at. In the Great Commission, the end of Matthew's Gospel, he tells the church to go, as you're going, make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The observing is the keeping, the keeping of the precepts, the commandments, the principles, everything that God has communicated in his Son, teaching others to do that. Some of you have been Christians a long time. 
Some of those things were very basic and simple, and uh, you didn't get all of them to begin with. But in time, have you not grown in your understanding of Jesus? Haven't you come to know the Father? Not just about him, but to know him, to experience him. The love of God spread abroad in your heart by the working of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is promising his disciples. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Children, that word manifest is another way of saying coming to know, coming to understand, having greater clarity about who Jesus is. Jesus said, if you obey me, if you walk in my principles, I will make myself known to you. And so it is by our obedience that we grow in our knowledge of God. There's two reasons why we should obey. First, living an obedient life in Christ pleases our Heavenly Father. That's the matter of duty. You know, we belong to the Father. The Father's commanded things. And so we might say, well, I'm going to obey because that's my duty. And that's legitimate. That's, it's the right thing to do. But second, and more importantly, is living an obedient life in Christ results in us knowing him. And this should, we should be moved along, motivated to do so out of love for God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he make himself known to us. So we can live out of duty, and we should, but we can live out of love. What a greater motive. Children, you know that's true. Maybe you can't think about it right now, but as you go forward, I want you to think about the next time your father does, tells you to do something or mother, your mother gives us a command. You can say, well, they're my parents. Jesus says I've got to obey them. I'm going to do it because it's my duty. And that would be right. Or you could remember this and say, I love my mother. I love my father. I'm going to obey them because I love them. I want to do this because of my love for them. And there would be a greater joy and a greater delight in it. These men in the upper room, they had, as I said earlier, there was something unique for them. You know, as believers, what I've been describing, they experienced. But as apostles, some of them would write the scriptures. And Jesus promised to them he would call these things to mind. He, we know from reading the Gospels and the book of Acts that those who were in the upper room, some of them, they had dreams and visions. Jesus appeared to them over the course of the next several years. And he gave them further revelation and understanding. And through them, we have the New Testament God revealed more of himself to them that it might be revealed to us through the inspired scriptures. Let's consider that. This promise that Jesus makes to them that we will come to know him through our obedience is still true for the church today. If we obey Jesus, he will manifest himself to us. If we walk as he says to walk in his word, we will see his glory. We will experience the Father. We will experience the Holy Spirit as we live in obedience. You notice something in this passage from verse 21 to 24. Jesus uses the word, uh, a word, the word, as in the word, four times. The word of God plays large in what he is saying here. If we were to discover God and understand him, we need to be of the word. We must use the word. We must keep his commandments. We must be immersed in the word. We don't discover God by the mountaintop, being on the mountaintops. Nor do we discover God by living it as some monastic in, in a desert place. Jesus makes himself known to us as we go about our ordinary lives obeying him. This should make it very clear to us that we should then be students of the word. We should be faithful in attendance upon the preaching of the word. We want to hide it in our hearts so that we not sin against God, that is to memorize the scripture. We meditate on it day and night as we hear the wise man does in Psalm 1. And as David says, I hide it in my heart so I will not sin against thee. So Jesus has promised that we will increase in our knowledge of him as we keep his precepts. Fourthly, Jesus promised then communion with the Father. So Jesus said, what? He will do. He will not leave us as orphans. Uh, When he would do it for the 11 men in the upper room, 
He would come to them again right after the resurrection. For us, it is when the Spirit enters into our heart, we begin with a new life and faith. He said, how we'll do it, because we'll keep growing in knowledge as we keep his commandments. But then Judas asked a question in verse 22. Judas, this is, uh, he's also known as Thaddeus. So John just says here, not Iscariot. This Judas is Thaddeus. He asked a question, and really his question is why. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Do you see the why in that? How is it? How can it be? Why would it be that you manifest yourself to us, but the world would not receive that manifestation? Why is that so? Well, Judas is confused probably because he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. There's, remember the expectation of Israel at the time? There was this expectation the Messiah was coming. Uh, there was an expectation that he would be a great king like King David, that he would come with mighty armies and break the yoke of bondage of Egypt, I mean of Rome, and deliver them, and they could have their nation again with uh, the son of David on the throne. That's what they were expecting. And so Judas is somewhat confused because Jesus, is, uh, Jesus isn't saying anything like this. He was expecting mighty miracles, the powerful hand of God like he did in Pharaoh when he broke uh, Egypt and humbled them. You say, that is Judas is saying, why is it that you will limit your manifestation? Well, Jesus answers in verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he would keep my word. See, there it is again. Here's this love being demonstrated by keeping of the commandments or the precepts. This time he says, the word of God. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is when it gets marvelous. There's this progressing of Jesus coming, revealing himself, making himself known to us. But we come to know the Father, and we have communion with the Father. This is what Jesus is teaching. The Father will make his home in our hearts. The Father will make his home in our hearts. God tabernacled with us. We are saved to become as Peter calls us in one of his epistles, living stones. The God inhabits us as living stones, and he is forming us and fashioning us to build with us a house that he will inhabit. Moses built a tabernacle, and God sent his glory down, and God said, this is me in your midst going with you. Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem, and God again sent his glory down into the temple. And so there's this expectation of those things. And indeed, those were marvelous things. It must have been marvelous. It must have been amazing when Moses walked out of the tent of meeting. And the people were like, oh man, we can't look at him. Because he was radiant. The, the glory of God was reflected from him. And he had to wear a veil over him. And it must have been amazing, marvelous. What a glorious thing. And to behold the temple of Solomon in all its glory and splendor must have been an amazing thing. And, and when God's Shekinah glory came down and dwelt on that place. But my friends, what Jesus is declaring here is far more significant. God does not dwell in a building built by men. He dwells in us who are his workmanship. First and foremost, made in his image. Male and female, he made us after his likeness. But in Christ, we're redeemed, we're rescued, we're remade, we're renewed. God's sanctifying us, making us more and more holy. And God dwells in us. The Father comes to commune with us, to be in us. God tabernacle with us. This is the meaning of the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh amongst men. He tabernacled with men and they were talking with him. They're in this upper room. He's there in their midst. But something even greater than that, that God would dwell in his people. The Father would be within us and commune with us. What a glorious truth. Jesus said at that time that a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign so even at this point, the men were still looking for something mighty and stupendous. Well, Jesus tells them that this is going to happen. This reality will come after this little while that he'll be gone. So what he's saying is the resurrection will bring the fullness and the reality of this home. 
When they see Jesus crucified, there must have been a great despair amongst them. They didn't understand it, but we're told that after the resurrection, they did. Then it became clear to them, and all these other things that Jesus taught them suddenly became clear. And the reality was, is the fullness of what Jesus came to secure and give to his people was so. God tabernacled with his people. God's way in all this is, is not some wow, like you know, great fireworks displays or uh, the display of mighty armies marching. It's more that still small spirit, God working in us. I believe that this Lord's Day in churches around the world as God's people assemble and Christ is preached, there will be those whom God will work in by his spirit making them alive unto him in salvation, giving them faith to repent, to look to him, faith to be united to Christ. And they'll become living stones. There'll be no fireworks. There won't be choirs of angels singing, at least not that we hear in heaven. We're told by Jesus' parable, the Father rejoices when a sinner is saved. But in a quiet and a still way, God is working, building his kingdom adding to it souls that are being saved. God is still coming. The Holy Spirit is still working, bringing people to God. Look with me at Titus 2. Titus 2, uh, verse 11. Paul writing to Titus, a minister. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, Zealous for good works. And then Paul says, speak these things. That is to one another. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is the message of God. That in Christ Jesus, we become a redeemed people. Redeemed from lawless deeds. Purified from sin and iniquity. That we should live for the glory of God. It's for this purpose that Jesus came into the world. So it is, Jesus answered to Nicodemus, I mean to uh, Thaddeus, Judas, not Iscariot. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's a marvelous truth. My friends, this truth is no less true today. What was promised and accomplished by Christ on the cross is still happening. And you know what we can say about this? This is awesome. This is awesome that God would do this. But as we conclude, we're going to look at that final verse. We conclude with because uh, we live because Jesus lives. We have new life in Jesus. He has made these promises to all who believe. We looked at four promises this morning. Jesus promised, and we changed the pronouns because they're true for us. Jesus promised that we would not be forsaken. Jesus promised we will see him again. Jesus promised to increase our knowledge. Jesus promised us communion with the Father. This is what the ordinary Christian life looks like. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, giving loving obedience to Christ, growing in knowledge of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It may not be that all who hear this word have this life. And how do you know you don't have it? Because you don't obey God. Or if you do so, it's out of this begrudging duty, like the, the parable, of, we call it uh, the prodigal son. The focus really is on the older brother. When his younger brother came home and he was indignant, he says, I've been here and I've served you and I've done all this and this and this, and you've never given me so much as a little kid goat to celebrate with my friends. He was only doing it out of duty. There may be those here right now who they only... Make some effort to obey God out of duty and not because of love for Jesus. Verse 24 applies to those like that. Because Jesus goes on, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear 
is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus adds or reminds the authority of what he's saying. He's the word of the Father. Everything that Jesus says is the word of God come through him. It's the word of the Father. But Jesus is saying with a word of warning, he who does not love me does not keep my words. So if you love me, you'll keep my words. If you don't love me, you won't keep my words. You can't do it. You might say, Pastor, you preach from that pulpit. The dead sinners can do nothing. Amen. That is true. I said, well, how can I do something? If, if I recognize right now I, I have no love for God, I don't have new life in Christ, and, and it's true that I can't do anything for myself, that I'm just like Lazarus, I'm hearing this word, I feel convicted, I feel guilty, I'm terrified, what should I do? My friends, that's an indication the Holy Spirit's working in you if you have those sense of those things. And what you should do is flee to Christ. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said back in John 6. And let your cry be, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I cannot do for myself. God, would you work in me and have mercy? And even if you are uttering such a prayer to God, know that it would be because the Holy Spirit's working in you, bringing you life, bringing you into life. And he let us all praise God that he still gives sinners the opportunity to come. He still bids people to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Amen. Father, we thank you for the promises that we won't be forsaken. We thank you, Lord. We know that we have not been forsaken. We, we have borne witness to and experience the spirit of adoption. Father, we thank you for the promise that we will see you again. We have seen you even now with the eye of faith as we look to he who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we know with that blessed hope that Jesus is coming again. Father, we thank you that you have promised to increase our knowledge, that as we walk and seek to walk in obedience, that we grow in our understanding of who you are, what you said, and how to live for your glory. We thank you that you have promised us communion with the Father. Even as we know now, we, we pray, Father. We pray to God, our Father, what a wonderful, intimate reality. What a wonderful union and blessing. Lord, bless us to walk, to live in the life you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing Psalm 101.